Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org and live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today's guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us for the first time, I think, we have a pharmacist, uh, Dr. Michael Magallanes, a doctor of pharmacy who is also board certified in geriatric pharmacy. Today's topic will be vitamins and minerals, the good, the bad, and the unnecessary. Andrew, we haven't covered this subject before. Why now? I'm surprised we've made it 300 episodes or however many (laughs) we're at now without covering it. I mean, this seems in in some ways foundational, Um, but it's a a big topic. It's a big topic in the lives of our patients and and probably our listeners, I assume, and people want to know about it. What, What is there to know about vitamins and minerals? And I don't know, Tom, if you, are you an I Love Lucy fan? Have you ever watched that? Oh, Vitamin to Vegemin. That's right. I've, I'm <laughs> queuing the Vitamita Vegemin, and uh, I can understand why everybody loves it. And you watched that. <laughs> I I can understand why why people love it so much, but uh, a lot a lot of them are not intoxicating like the I Love Lucy uh, <laughs> skit. Most of them are just boring old pills. And so, what's the deal? We brought in a pharmacist today to help us uh, understand because vitamins are not, I'd say, without controversy, right, Tom? Yeah, a lot of people uh, think that, oh, everybody, of course, would want to take a multivitamin. Well, would they? Why? I remember back when I was an intern, like in 1990 to 91, the internal medicine residents were all taking a baby aspirin and vitamin E to reduce the risk Mm -hmm. of heart attack. Okay, where is that now, Andrew? Right. It's back in the dustbin of uh, yesteryear. Both of those things. Yeah, it's the part of medicine, you know, half of what you're learning is going to be proven wrong. You just don't know which half, you know, right. and that's uh, that's one of those things. And there's so many examples in medicine, but vitamins, it, it does seem like things go in phases, you know, things are very in style for a while. And then sure enough, new kid on the block, we've all forgotten about the old ones, you know. Right. So I think it's good for people to know because a lot of people think, oh, I take vitamin C when I have a cold or zinc when I have a cold because it helps and there's evidence for it, right? Well, is there? You know, we're going to cover that. I mean, uh, even in my own family, they will do things that I think aren't supported by evidence, but it's, it's like in the air we breathe. It's amazing. Well, and, and Tom, what, what in your mind is the difference? Because we talk about evidence an awful lot. But there's yes. different types of evidence, right? And so a lot of times when, when I'm talking to patients about evidence, I try and reference some kind of study from some kind of journal that, you know, <laughs> yes. maybe they've they've heard of or is respected in some way. But there's another type of advice that I think is even more powerful, and that's anecdotal advice. Anecdotal. What's the difference? Aunt Susie took zinc when she had influenza and she got better in two days. It was the zinc, therefore. Yeah. And it's like, well, Aunt Susie probably did a lot of things, and maybe Aunt Susie didn't have the flu. So in other words, when you hear stories, yeah, there might be truth to it, but studies are putting together hundreds of stories. And then you find out what's really true. And not only are they putting together stories, but they're actually looking at, will this one thing make a difference when you've ruled out all these other things? So it's a much more clean look at what might be making a difference. Whereas and just, yeah, these other stories are just that. It, it seems like there might be a, a chasm in understanding, though, and, and in discussion because I come at patients with these studies I've read, and they kind of maybe roll their eyes a little bit, like, is that from the CDC? I don't trust anything from the CDC. Um, or uh, patients come at me with stories about Aunt Susie, and I'm like, come on, really? Everybody's got ants. You know, that's one story. How can we bridge that gap when we're, we, I think we rely on different evidence is most important. I I think, you know, something I've learned is that when you are being told a story, it activates many areas of your brain, including emotional areas. A study doesn't do that. So somehow we have to figure out ways to make that study a story. You know, we talk about, well, here's a hundred Aunt Susie's and a hundred Uncle John's and, and and a thousand cousin George's, you know, all put together in here. And this is what we found out really works. I I don't know the best way to do that, but 
you're right. The stories make such a difference to us. That's why they're using yeah. advertising. Yeah, that's the truth. And and honestly, I, I hope that's one of the things we can kind of talk about today as well. We're going to be going through a lot of different vitamins, but doctors, we're infatuated with the data and we're trying to bring evidence and numbers and all these things to help us make good decisions. But, uh, y- you know, it's, it's trying to figure out the best way to act. And ultimately, you know, one of the things that I always try and introduce to the conversation with, with vitamins as well is this idea of the placebo effect. Right, Tom? We, yeah, we've okay, talked about big. that on this show before. If yes. if I prescribe, actually, I, I had a doctor friend who told me in other countries, they have a sugar pill that uh, they can prescribe for people. Uh, it seems a little unethical, but in, in other places, they do prescribe placebo wow. pills, which, you know, I, I forget who we were talking to, one of our previous guests, they said that the placebo effect might be even somewhere around 40 or more percent effective, where if you do anything, if you wear a green shirt when you have a cold, uh, you're going to feel 40% better because you wore your lucky shirt, you know? And um, to what degree do taking vitamins or taking anything fulfill that, you know? And this this is to be differentiated, though, from supplements. Uh, that's something that we're not going to try and cover today, right, Tom? Because there's so many to cover. We'll hopefully get through the vitamins and maybe even minerals, But uh, supplements, you think of things like uh, ginkgo biloba or turmeric, um, those are not in this show because when I started making the list, it's like, oh my goodness, there is no way. Yeah. (laughs) So I want to do them justice. And Tom, what do you think some of the big reasons are people take vitamins? Because they think they need them to be healthy. Okay. They they think they need to feel better. What, What do you think? I, I think so too. And I, I think a lot of people want to feel like they're doing a good job at, at checking the health box. And, ah, uh, yes. I, I see people a lot of times, especially in the new year, new year resolutions. I'm going to go see the doctor. My wife's been trying to make me and here I am. Sure enough. <laughs> okay. What do I actually have to do to be healthy? Here I am. And, uh, a, a lot of times when I don't have, you know, 12 vitamins to recommend, they're like, eh, is this guy a quack? What's he talking about? I, I thought I'm supposed to do all that stuff. But, you know, really, I, I think one of the, the main things about health, too, is that there's no pill that's a shortcut to the hard work of, you know, eating a healthy diet, even Correct. even when you want junk food and exercising, even when you don't feel like it. And uh, you can't shove that in a pill. We don't We don't have one as of right now. We don't. And we're going to learn about what we do have in those vitamin pills, but after the medical trivia question of the day. And the topic is, flip the page. Vitamin D. Oh, yeah. The American need for vitamins and supplements. Vitamin D <laughs> vegemin would be a more interesting one. <laughs> Maybe yes. next what time. What color was Lucy's <laughs> hair in that episode? No. The question, a 2019 Harris poll for the American Osteopathic Association. So those would be the association for... DOs, doctors of osteopathy, as opposed to the AMA, reveal that 86% of adult Americans take some vitamin or supplement. 86%. Of those taking them, what percentage of them had evidence of at least one nutritional deficiency that would warrant taking them? By the way, I do take one vitamin myself, but only because I have a demonstrated deficiency. So what Extra percent credit of that if you can guess what that is. No, oh, bonus, bonus, <laughs> bonus. <laughs> but you have to wait till the end of the show right here with Andrew and me here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome to our guest interview today on Dr. Doctor. We have with us today Dr. Michael Magallanes. Michael is a doctor of pharmacy. He's also a board certified geriatric pharmacist. He's been practicing for several years and now works at a forensic hospital in California. He also, in his spare time, writes articles on supplements and alternative treatments for common ailments. His interest in this started when he was uh, working as an intern with the FDA, and he learned about investigations into adulterated and misbranded products. Yes, it, it does happen. And his interest continued when many patients and family members asked him for advice about supplements. So, Michael, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you for having me. So, Michael, as the first uh, pharmacist we've had on Dr. Doctor, what is it that led you to decide to go into a career in pharmacy? Well, it started as a child. I grew up next to a hospital, so I had an early exposure to the healthcare field. And I did some volunteering. I worked near the patient's bedside. 
But ultimately, after a short training as an EMT, I realized that, you know, blood and fluids were not for me. And I wanted more <laughs> of a hands-off. Yeah, I wanted more of a hands-off approach where I could help patients a different way. And so it also um, started to in the home because, you know, when we, were, we got sick, uh, my mom would always recommend natural homeopathic remedies and kind of a traditional uh, medicine, um, old-fashioned medicine. And, um, and so I kind of grew up with that curiosity of, you know, why is it that people take medications and, and those medications, are they, are they necessary? So I went into pharmacy school thinking I would help patients. And, and then I learned that, you know, the world of pharma is very complicated, you know, from the, the prescription drugs to even the OTC drugs, you know, so it's been a very interesting experience. And I really enjoy doing what I do currently. Um, but I'm always learning new things. So it's, it's a very um, interesting field. So even apart from your day job, you've started a blog that helps educate the public about various prescription and OTC meds and supplements. Tell us about that, how you got interested in that. Yeah, so like uh, Dr. Uh, McGovern uh, Tom said, I um, did a short stint at the FDA and it was there that I had an eye-opening experience of you know, what goes on in the manufacturing of supplements and, and um, vitamins and all these um, other over-the-counter products. And what I learned is that the FDA doesn't really regulate supplements or vitamins. They only regulate food. So foods and supplements, so supplements and over-the-counter products, some of them at least, not all of them, are considered food in the eyes of the FDA. So they can prevent manufacturers from putting products on the shelves. They can only cite them for you know, misbranding or adulteration. And so it was there that I realized, you know, this is actually a big deal because a lot of people consume these products. They spend a lot of money and they um, put these things in their bodies and, and they, don't have, they don't come without risks. So, and then you, and then coupled with the fact that I worked in a pharmacy uh, during my school days, I also got a lot of questions from patients. And I still get questions from patients and family about, you know, what should I take for UTI? What should I take for, you know, inflammation? What should I take for, you know, the common cold? And so it's kind of surprising to me that people still uh, resort to vitamins as kind of a natural way to treat their common ailments. But it's very common, the, you know, as you probably know as doctors, that patients like to self-medicate and they kind of come to you already with an opinion of what they have. So that's kind of why I wanted to do this blog. And I'm hoping really to bring transparency to the, to the supplement field because there's a lot of myths and a lot of fads going out there that people just take it good faith that it's accurate. And it's, there's a lot of misinformation yeah. T tell us, for, for the purposes of our discussion, what is the difference between a vitamin and a supplement? So vitamins are just a general term for just micronutrients that already exist in foods. So you have your common vitamins, A, B, C, you know, <laughs> not like that, but, you know, you have vitamin A, E. So that's a micronutrient. Um, and supplements can also be vitamins, but when you, when you say supplements, usually you're referring to like health promoting products that are not just vitamins. So for example, um, a protein powder could be considered a supplement or like turmeric uh, is a supplement, CoQ10. Um, so these are other products that are not necessarily found naturally in food. T tell us a little bit, you had kind of referenced the ability of the FDA to supervise uh, supplements and foods. How does that compare to the supervision of, of drugs, prescription drugs? Because I have a lot of patients tell me they prefer supplements because they don't have all the side effects listed that the prescription drugs do. How is the supervision different? Yeah, so I mean, uh, prescription drugs require a lot of clinical trials. And first, you know, they have to go through different phases, one, two, three, and they have to have safety and efficacy trials. So they're very rigorous standards that are applied to prescription drugs. On the contrary, you know, supplements don't have that, they don't have that strict guidelines to follow. For example, anyone like you or I could 
just uh, take an off-the-shelf template for a, a supplement, just copy an existing one, and then label it with your own brand. And you could say, oh, it's, it's, it, this is an immune booster, or this is, um, you know, whatever you want to say it is. The only you don't have to prove it, do you? No, well, you don't have to prove it, um, but it does, it, it better have, it better not have like health claims like this will cure cancer. Otherwise, the FDA will come after you and they will, they will shut you down <laughs> at the very least. So, um, yeah, that's the, kind of the, the main difference. Um, so you can say it does something in general, but not specific. Right. Yeah. Or it doesn't, or, or you can't say it cures something. You, it, you can say it makes something better, but you can't say that it, it treats a specific ailment. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, so vitamins, do they make sure that those contain what it says on the bottle? So some do and some don't. And so that's why there's different um, third-party test testers like USP, the United States Pharmacopeia. Then there's uh, NSF. Um, that's another third-party tester. Those two are the most reputable ones because they do, they do test directly from the manufacturer and it's um, somewhat anonymous. And um, the USP is a little bit higher reputation just because they test frequently, like uh, multiple times per year. Versus the NSF does it maybe once a year. So that's a very good question because you want to make sure that what you're taking, what you're putting in your body, you know, is actually what the product says it is. And unfortunately, there have been cases um, where people have taken or bought something and it turns out that what's in the bottle is not actually what it's supposed to be. Or there's extra stuff that they didn't, they didn't want to be in there and might actually hurt them because they're on a certain medication. Well, is there a way for people who are buying these things to know what they can trust and can't trust? Because it seems like people, they go into, you know, a, a vitamin store or a, a nutrition store and they, I can trust everything in every one of these bottles. Is that true? Like they should trust it. Yeah, no, absolutely not. I would say there's, there's very few products you can trust uh, with the exception of you know, the ones that are labeled USP or NSF. And there's other ones like um, UL is another one. And there's new companies coming out like Consumer Lab. And they're trying to bring transparency to, to the supplement world. But you'll find many, many products on the market that the most they will say in terms of certification is good manufacturing practices, which is what the FDA requires to you know, in terms of their guidelines of avoiding, you know, any tainted product, any poor hygiene, you know, mixing it with soy products or nut allergies. So those are the good manufacturing practices that a lot of bottles will kind of settle for because that's the very minimum that people kind of expect. But you also will just see products that say, you know, vegan or soy free and, you know, made in the USA and, you know, um, not animal tested. So these are all like fun kind of uh, good, good feeling labels, but they don't really mean anything for you and your health. Is there a difference if, uh, for example, sometimes we'll prescribe vitamin D for patients as a prescription that they pick up from their pharmacist, and then other times patients might pick it off the shelf or order it online. Is there a difference in, in quality there? Or if you find that USP or another designation like that, that's adequate? Yeah, a lot of the times... You can get vitamin D off the shelf, and if it's USP, and if it's still meeting your requirements, that's that's great. But a lot of times, that's for maintenance. Um, and usually, when you're prescribed something by your doctor, by you guys, it's usually a very high dose. So it's, at that point, they've already determined that you are, you know, deficient in vitamin D. You you really need this, so they're gonna give you like basically a boost shot and kind of get your levels up. And then once they're back normal, then you can go to a maintenance, a lower dose. So initially, you would benefit all patients to go with a prescription, especially because it also is paid for by most of the times by insurance. And um, if you're lucky, you could even, you know, ask your doctor to write you a prescription for over-the-counter vitamin, and that could sometimes even be covered by insurance. But yeah, that's a, a different issue. So, and then one more big picture question before we get into the specific vitamins, and, and that is how reasonable in general is it to assume 
that a, a vitamin taken above what the body normally needs, you know, the recommended daily allowance, how reasonable to, yeah. to assume that that dose is going to help any particular disease? You know, it's not reasonable at all um, because most people who take vitamins um, are generally healthy. You know, we are fortunate, we're blessed to live in a country that has a lot of resources and um, most people get their vitamins from their food. Um, and there's been a lot of studies done on, you know, on disease prevention of disease and most of them haven't been observational. So meaning that they've seen a link, but it doesn't mean there's a, you know, a actual correlation there. So um, they're trying to do, you know, a lot of companies and even the government, they're trying to do more clinical studies, but they haven't really proven and there have been a lot of inconsistencies in terms of if vitamins have any benefit in preventing cancer, for example, or, you know, chronic heart failure. So, um, so I would say, yeah, it's not very reasonable to assume that supplements well, will... In fact yeah. When Andrew and I were just talking, he mentioned that the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force just came out with what, Andrew? Yeah, there was a uh, – I always love referring to them mostly because their initials are so long. Uh, <laughs> it, it seems that one of their, their pieces of evidence suggests that there's insufficient evidence for taking multivitamins or paired supplements to prevent cardiovascular disease or cancer. As Which you Michael just mentioned. Yeah. yeah, which uh, for them to make a statement, it's usually pretty well documented, I'd say. All right. Well, yeah. let's go through the vitamin aisles of the grocery store. Let's start at the beginning of the vitamin alphabet with A. What is vitamin A and why do we need it, Michael? So vitamin A is just one of the common micronutrients that you'll find that you can find in food, you'll get from your food. Um, it's important for many biological actions, but primarily it's, good, it's important for your eye health. So in your retina, there's there's several vitamin A binding um, proteins, and so it just if you take it if you take it through your food on a regular basis, it will help maintain the health of your eye. And so, if you take more vitamin A than you need, does it make your vision even better? No. No. What happens fact, if you take too much of it? Well, um, it can be toxic. Their doses of single dose of greater than 200 milligrams can result in actually it's not healthy for the pregnant female. Um, there, there has been cases of teratogenicity in oh. um, females who've taken um, really high doses of vitamin A. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I haven't seen any other commonly reported cases of vitamin A toxicity, but sure. yeah, but that's the main one that I've that I know of. And it might be good to go into the difference between water-soluble and fat-soluble and which ones can build up and which can't. Right. So vitamin A is one of those fat-soluble ones. And um, also vitamin uh, K and D and E. So um, the most toxic one is, is D and then followed by A and then uh, K and E. So um, they're just... Water, they're fat soluble because you know the body absorbs them and they're stored in the liver mostly and some other fatty tissues. So the other water soluble ones are you know B and um, trying to think of and C and C right. So um, so those ones are mostly flushed out, but I think B twelve it's kind of in the middle ground. You okay. do get some absorption but most of it is flushed out. Let's let's move on to the B vitamins. I don't know why they didn't just go A through Z, but they stopped at the Bs and did several of them. Uh, yeah. But the first one that we want to make sure we discuss is B3, nicotinamide. Tell us yeah. about B3. Why do we need it? Good question. So actually, nicotinamide is a form of, of B3, but there's niacin, there's nicotinamide, and there's um, nicotinic acid. So the most common uh, the most common supplement you'll see is niacin B3. So this is basically in all the tissues of your body, and B3 is converted into uh, the main active form of niacin. So this medicate this supplement is used um, to convert energy um, into 
energy from your skeletal muscle into energy. So, and it also helps produce ATP. Who yeah. would it be good for? Should we all take some more of it or is there a dark side? Yeah, so we should not all take, all, we should not all take this. So the dark side is that um, large doses can cause um, adverse effects like hypotension, um, falls, fatigue, impaired glucose tolerance. Um, these are some of the common side effects from too much niacin. So who might need it? So it's been used for a few things, but people, mostly people who have um, malnutrition. So if they have anorexia or if they um, have, you know, like gastric bypass surgery or if they just are poor absorbers. So people like um, who have inadequate riboflavin or um, iron intakes, that can also be um, something, an, a case where they have low B3. And we need to ask you, are there any drug interactions between vitamin A or between or niacin? Are there any drugs you shouldn't take them with? Niacin, to my knowledge, I don't believe there are. Um, okay. Yeah. Vitamin A does interact with, retino- with esotretinoin, so it's a common acne medication. And usually when doctor starts you on this, they'll you know, they'll suggest that you stop taking a vitamin A supplement. Exactly. And and in my world, uh, the nicotinamide or nicotinic acid or niacinamide actually in studies has been demonstrating people get a lot of skin cancers to reduce them by 20 to 30% uh, starting a month after you take them. And it may have to do with the fact that it helps produce energy in the cells and here the energy to help uh, the skin cancer, the cells that get damaged by the sun to actually repair the DNA damage. So it's interesting that there is evidence for that. And I've got some of my frequent flyers, uh, patients on it for that reason. Let's go on to, um, so vitamin B6, pyridoxine, what is it and what does it do? Right. So it's a coenzyme that performs a wide variety of functions and uh, involved in more than 100 enzymes, enzyme reactions, and it's mostly concerned with protein metabolism. So it's also involved in gluconeogenesis. Um, and your immune function and in a hemoglobin function. So who would need something like this? Is it again, is it going to be a, a repetition here? People who are, are malnourished to begin with? Yeah, um, so there's that. Um, there's also uh, been cases where people who, um, who are pregnant, um, they've, been, they've used it to, pre- to prevent preeclampsia or eclampsia. Oh. Yeah. Um, and it's also very common in, um, in smokers um, to use it because smoking, the oxidative stress from smoking can deplete your vitamin B6. And it also wouldn't hurt a, a growing child to, to be supplemented with this because, um, because they're in the developmental phase. Mm. And what, what, if any, is the dark side to this? Any bad things about B6 we got to watch for? So if you have too much of it, it can lead to neuropathy um, because it just overexcites the sensory neurons and has, and it's kind of, they don't really know what that is caused by, but it has to do with, with the GABA signaling. I don't know if you know what GABA is. It's, you know, excitatory um, neurotransmitters. So um, that's kind of worst case scenario. And usually, usually on the bottle, um, I have one right here in front of me. Um, they'll give you, let's see, two milligrams. So that's still below the upper limit of what would consider toxic. Very good. B6 is one that I'll see sometimes advertised in like energy drinks. Is there a thought process there? So there is a thought process there. So as I mentioned, you know, it's involved in converting energy from um, fats, carbohydrates, but it's not going to be really that effective at giving you a lot of energy. You're probably better off just drinking caffeine. Um, <laughs> yeah. Get down to the good stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we're about halfway through the interview, so we're going to take a break now and come back on the other side of Dr. Doctor with more information from Michael on vitamins. And we are back with Dr. Doctor, and today we're talking about vitamins. 
Michael, can you tell us a little bit more as we're going through these vitamins? I know there's a lot of B vitamins. What should we know about B7, biotin? Right, so it's similar to B6. It helps with metabolizing fatty acids, glucose amino acids. It also helps in gene regulation and cell signaling. Um, but the Food Nutrition Board wasn't able to find data sufficient to derive a RDA or our uh, RDI. So you'll still find it um, sometimes in supplements, but you can get most of it from your food. So that includes eggs, fish, meat, um, nuts, um, and sweet potatoes. So um, it's not necessary to take, um, but there is a lot of hype that it might be used for hair and skin. And oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, there is. <laughs> it's funny. The people, at least the people I see taking it, worried about the hair and skin, are the thyroid people. And uh, it can it can be a fly in the ointment for us because I think it, it interacts with the way we do the thyroid testing, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, there are some biotinylated assays that can be affected if you take too much biotin. So um, that's not to say you can't take it, but you would want to at least stop it for uh, 24 hours before you get you know, a thyroid test. Um, well, the next B vitamin is a real common one that we hear about. People are often even taking shots of it, and that's vitamin B12. What's the big deal about vitamin B12? So B12 um, is commonly thought to help with energy. So B12 is required for um, development and for the central nervous system and for healthy uh, blood cell formation, as well as DNA synthesis. And usually you'll find it in your supplements, in your, in your vitamin bottle, um, you know, around 2.4 micrograms. That's the kind of recommended uh, daily uh, value that you should be taking. But um, is it true that older adults are more likely to be deficient in it than any other group? You know, not necessarily. I mean, as long as they're having a balanced healthy diet there's okay. no there's no good reason why um adults would be deficient in it the only when, when patients what? get shots of b12 they all swear up and down to me that they've got more energy is that just the placebo effect or is there something going on there yeah so it does have a role in energy but it has no beneficial effect on performance so it really is most likely just a placebo they haven't there have been a lot of studies and there's no real proof that it can boost your energy. A lot of times those boosters are combined with other stimulants like caffeine. And that's the most likely reason why they're feeling, you know, energetic. Gotcha. I guess yeah. before we move out of the B vitamins, the other one that gets a lot of press historically in, in pregnancy is folic acid, vitamin B9. Um, what yeah. should we know in general about B9 or folic acid? Yeah, so B9 is an important one because it comes from the Latin word folia, um, so which is why you find a lot of it, a lot of uh, folic acid in, in spinach and leafy greens. So it's importantly um, used in pregnant women and lactating women, as well as, as well as children, um, because it helps with developing the spinal cord and the central nervous system. Yeah, it prevents neural tube defects like anencephaly or spina bifida. So that's, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Dr. Jerome Lejeune discovered that way back in the early 60s. That was a wonderful thing. So that would probably be highest on the list of things we've covered so far that has a definite, very positive benefit, right. at least in, in my book. So vitamin C, uh, I've got a signed copy of the book that uh, Linus Pauling wrote about how vitamin C can cure just about anything. Uh, of course, he was wrong. But what what's yeah. the big deal about vitamin C? So vitamin C, also known as ascorbic acid, um, you find it in a lot of food. Um, and it's important to help promote synthesis of collagen, um, also certain neurotransmitters, and it's involved in protein metabolism. So it's also an antioxidant. And the truth is, it's been really promoted as a medica uh, supplement that you can use to help with fighting colds, but there hasn't really been any studies that prove that once you get sick, it's going to help diminish your symptoms. Um, so, I, 
<clears throat> I kind of wonder if if there's somewhat of a drying effect with vitamin C. So maybe there's yeah. less, you know, one of the things that uh, I get to help people with sometimes is with infertility. And I, I had one lady who didn't have a mucus cycle because she was on so much vitamin C and she discontinued oh, wow. vitamin C and got, got pregnant. And uh, wow. so I, I've always kind of wondered, do you think that's a mechanism for why some people like it for cold symptoms or hard to say, just all marketing? Um, are you referring to, sorry, the mucus or what was the, I guess. The, or like uh, just uh, generally drying up uh, nasal mucus, for for example, with cold symptoms. Um, yeah. So is, it, is it mostly hype, I guess? Well, vitamin C actually does have a hist antihistamine effect. So there is, there's that. Um, so it could be there, but it's, it's um, not likely going to really help prevent the duration of your cold. Mm, gotcha. So the studies have been looked into, it doesn't help. So it's not that it hasn't been studied. It has been studied. Isn't that right? Right. So, and the classic example of not enough vitamin C was scurvy. You know, the old time sailors, until they discovered that limes would help solve it. So they were losing teeth. They were bleeding from everywhere. They get little corkscrew hairs. They're, yeah. They don't heal. It's, it's a mess. So if you have enough, it prevents that. But more, isn't it true that with the B vitamins in general and C, if you take more than you need, it just goes out in your urine? Um. Most of it, yeah, except for B12 is one of those weird ones that right. some of it does get accumulated. But, yeah, that's, that's the only one. Most of them do get excreted in the urine. So one that doesn't get excreted in the urine typically is vitamin D. And there's been a lot of ink used over the last 20, 30 years on this one. So why the excitement about vitamin D? So, yeah, there has been a lot of studies. And... Um, there's been, they're trying to, um, they're trying to still determine if it helps prevent fractures, um, but it's used to promote calcium absorption in the gut, and which is, as we know, important for, you know, bone health. Um, it prevents osteomalacia and osteoporosis in adults, but um, according to, you know, um, some studies that I looked at, it didn't necessarily prevent fractures, but it did prevent falls um, in, in some elderly adults because of the effect it has on the muscles. So B vitamin D has some role in muscle contraction. So yes. there's, there's been some scientific support there in that area. If, if people, a lot of people are availing themselves to blood tests to check for vitamin D, that's a yeah. common one. If somebody's low in vitamin D and they have a deficiency per that blood test, is it smart for us to go ahead and take it? Um, no, I wouldn't necessarily take a vitamin D just because it's just because it's low. It could be a lot of reasons. They would have to look at your whole your whole profile, your whole medical profile, and ultimately, I would only take something over the counter unless the doctor said, you know, you you, know, you need this for your health. I would never buy something over the counter if I thought, you know, just because I thought it was low one on one occasion, because they have to, they might have to recheck it and it could be due to other reasons that it's low. So vitamin D, yeah, that, that's been a, a wonder. I'm wondering if we're just taking way too much of it. I mean, I know the Institute of Medicine recommends, what is it, 400 milligrams for most adults and 600 or 800 milligrams if you're yeah. over 60 yeah. years, years old. Uh, which probably isn't going to hurt anybody. It sounds like yeah. the best reason to take it are, are women who need calcium to prevent osteoporosis. It helps them absorb the calcium. Would that be a good reason to take vitamin D? Yeah, you know, it's not it's not going to hurt you to take it, um, you know, if you're a healthy adult, as long as you're not overdoing it. Um, so, and how much is overdoing it? So above, like... 1,000 international units would be overdoing it. So, so less than that, we're probably in good shape. Yeah. Um, another vitamin that, you know, 30 years ago, a lot of doctors in training were taking, but they're not anymore. That's vitamin E. So what's interesting about vitamin E? So it's an antioxidant. It's like another micronutrient. You'll find it um, in, your, in the foods. 
Um, and it's, you'll find it in most supplements. Um, I mean, people think that antioxidants can cure cancer, prevent cancer, prevent heart disease. Is that true in the case of vitamin E? So no, that's not true. Um, they have, what I have seen is that people use it a lot for, you know, skin conditions, for eczema and psoriasis. Um, and it's really, what I found is that it's really helpful to help bring the moisture back to the skin, but doesn't necessarily pre prevent um, any skin damage from the UV radiation. So um, that's the most common place setting where I've seen it used. Um, but in terms of preventing chronic conditions, I, I haven't found anything in my, my studies or in personal experience that it can do that. And, uh, you know, going on through the, the alphabet here, one of the letter vitamins we have is vitamin K. This might be our last letter vitamin. Tell us about vitamin K. We, I feel like we talk about that a lot in the newborn health period. You're right. So, yeah, they give you a shot um, when you're born uh, to prevent bleeding. But basically, it's, it's a coenzyme. Uh, it's involved in synthesis of proteins um, to prevent blood clotting. So, you know, it helps, it helps produce prothrombin. Um, that's why if you have a concern for clotting, they might give you warfarin uh, to help prevent uh, a clot down the, li down the line. So, um, so warfarin blocks the vitamin K-dependent part of the clotting pathway, right? Right, yeah. So um, who needs vitamin K besides newborns? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, if you have a deficiency that's been proven by your doctor, um, that's one reason to take it. Um, in, in Japan and in Europe, for example, they have done studies and they've also shown that vitamin K can help improve bone health. Um, so they actually have a health claim that you can use vitamin K for bone health. In the, in the U.S., the FDA has not uh, approved that claim. But, you know, that's one reason why you would take vitamin K as well. Um, but if you have malabsorptions, you know, with like um, celiac or Crohn's, or um, if you're, um, you know, if you have a certain diet restriction, you might benefit from taking vitamin K as well. And Michael, as, as we're winding down the interview here, there's really two more big ones at least I want to check on. Uh, one is calcium. We're breaking the alphabetical order here. Uh, yeah. And then just a general multivitamin. I guess maybe take calcium first. What, who needs calcium? And is it a bad idea to take more or a good idea? Who needs calcium? So I would say growing children, um, pregnant women, adults, you know, we all could benefit from calcium. But I would say as long as you have a regular, healthy, balanced diet, um, you wouldn't necessarily benefit from a supplement. In fact, too much calcium could be detrimental to your health. So, okay. yeah. So, so calcium ideally for postmenopausal women in particular to prevent fractures, right? Yes, it has been used in that setting. However, the, the studies are kind of inconsistent in terms of whether they are that effective for that. Usually, if you have, you know, if you're hypocalcemic um, and depending on your bone mineral density exam, the doctor will probably prescribe you uh, bisphosphonate to help improve the density of your bones. Um, that's probably going to be more effective than... Uh. Uh, bumping up your your calcium supplement dose. That's and, good and to Mike, know. Tell us, I guess, as we're winding down here, multivitamins in general. There's this thought that everybody needs a multivitamin, or especially kids. Who do you think really needs a multivitamin? So I would say people who are vegan, people who have malabsorptive dis um, disorders, who've had like, gastric bypass or celiac or Crohn's. Um, children could benefit because, as you know, there could be finicky eaters. And pregnant women would also benefit. Those are the general kind of population classes that I would recommend a vitamin for, almost, uh, just a general uh, multivitamin for. But I would I stay think that's away... The most I think that's the most rational answer I've ever heard. Good, good answer. And you were going to say you should stay away from? 
Uh, I would I would personally you know kind of stray away from picking out specific vitamins um, that you'll find in high doses because usually usually you can get most of your adequate doses in a in a multivitamin and a lot of these other um, single single product vials like for example um, selenium will have way more than what you actually need. So uh, last question I have is, do you take a multivitamin each day? You know, I take one, but not each day. I, I mostly take it when I remember to take it. But, um, but I also read my labels very well, and, I, and I'm very cautious about what else is in there because a lot of times you'll find extra stuff that you don't really need. Such as? Well, some products will say, you know, has, you know, lycopene or, um, um, for example, right here, I'm trying to see, vanadium, um, <laughs> boron, you know, and, um, and then some, and so also I make sure that when I look at how much is in it, I'll try to avoid where it says, you know, more than 300%. So I'm not, this bottle I have in front of me is not exactly one that I take, but, you know, for folate, for folate, you know, it's 250%, you know, so I know personally that I eat a lot of greens and a lot of grains. And so I'm not worried of my folic acid um, consumption. Well, Michael, so, thank you so much for coming on our show and talking about vitamins. I think you gave us some good practical information. Thanks for being with us on Dr. Doctor. Well, thank you. And we are back with Dr. Doctor. And Tom, what's the answer to the medical trivia question? Which was of all the Americans, 86% of them that take a vitamin or supplement each day, what percent of them were demonstrated to have a deficiency in what they took? And the answer is 24%. Only one in every four people who take a multivitamin or any vitamin or supplement had a deficiency that needed to be treated, uh, which I found fascinating. I'm one of those people that had, you know, between 20 and 30 on the scale, my um, vitamin D level. So I'm taking it and now I'm up in the 50s. But like you were asking, I still don't know if we should trust those levels. I mean, Michael suggested it might be optimal bone health, but I, I'm still unaware of the studies personally. It doesn't mean they aren't out there that show that. Well, it's so interesting to me because a lot of times, you know, when we have a prescription drug, I'm thinking of, you know, lisinopril or metformin or something very basic. You know, the patient's overwhelmed by the side effects, but I'm so confident because they've done a bajillion studies on this and I know right. the right dose to recommend and I know what's going to happen. And if there's going to be problems, I can watch for them. With the supplements, I, it's tough because since they're not branded, there's not really that same profit motive to get things approved. We don't have good data. So I, I feel a lot of times inadequate to make really good recommendations. So I, uh, I really appreciate Michael's insights. And uh, I, I think we're kind of crafting a little bit of how doctors think about vitamins. And it's sometimes a lot, of, a lot of ways different than how patients think. So your top three takeaways. Uh, well, I guess number one, kind of the, the punchline, I think, if, if there is one for the show, is that if you are not deficient in a vitamin... Um, you probably don't need it, uh, which is a, a gentle way of saying you probably probably don't need to take it. Americans spend fifty billion with a B dollars on vitamins every year. Uh, give it to poor people. Uh, don't don't buy the vitamins. Um, number two, um, some there's definitely some dangers. I think a lot of patients I talk to feel like taking vitamins is a safer way to go than taking a prescription medicine because they don't have side effects. And what I would say is that they, they, if they're working, if they're doing anything at all, they have side effects. And as Michael pointed out, even sometimes, unfortunately, adulterations. So be careful what you're taking. Be aware that there, there might be problems with it. And check for that USP label that he mentioned that would be yeah. one of the more reputable vitamins if you're buying yeah. And that stands for United States Pharmacopeia. So that was a good tidbit that I heard. And I'd like to augment what a Andrew said on both uh, his first two top three points. And that was in the study I quoted that gave me that 24% answer. The, the people who did the study said most people have no need to take vitamins and they said are wasting their money on supplements that are unlikely to improve their health 
may actually harm it. Some of the examples I gave is that some of the supplements can decrease the effectiveness of common medications such as warfarin or coumadin, insulin, and, uh, and Xanax. So there is that. Yeah, and everybody wants their Xanax to work. Trust me on that one. Um, <laughs> Your third point number. Point number three, you know, just kind of a good disclaimer, go talk to your doctor. If they're your doctor, you better trust them. And if you trust them, listen to them. You probably uh, <laughs> you probably don't need all these different vitamins. And if you do, they'll tell you. And as Michael pointed out, there's there's a time and a place for them. But this is not some kind of, I had one, one patient who was on several medicines. I was sad to hear that she put them all in a jar and took a handful every day. And I said, <laughs> I hope they help. And I said, you can't do that. But that's what people do with vitamins, right? They take a handful every day and say, I hope they help. So don't do that. Talk to your doctor and you're going to be better off for it. And thank you for being with us through another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this in all our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. You can search our episode archive and find what you want by searching for guests or topic of over 300 episodes. And if you want to see the background of our recording studios, me and my dream library, which is actually a closet with a backdrop, check out our video version. You we would love to see books? you on there. <laughs> <laughs> read them. I own them. I own them. Thank you, Joseph. <laughs> so, this is Dr. Uh, Tom McGovern. <laughs> this is Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to our text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.